Hello, and welcome to Film Kid Asks, the podcast where I ask questions to working professionals in the film industry from the perspective of someone just getting started. My name is Jordan, and today I'm joined by Dan Liu, the director and editor who has worked on titles like The Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead, and Netflix's new fantasy series, Shadow and Bone, just to name a few of his impressive credits. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dan. Happy to be here. So you studied film at NYU and actually got your first job in your senior year helping Spike Lee, who was one of your professors with his film, When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts. That's a pretty insane opportunity. So my question is, how was your film school experience overall? Um, You know, NYU is a different kind of school where it's right in the middle of Manhattan. So it's almost like you're attending seminars in a way rather than like the whole college experience because I transferred from UC Davis, which was a very college town. And you know, you had your dorms, you had your apartment areas where all the students lived. So it was such a drastic change. But what was great was just the opportunity of being around people who loved making film 24 seven. So that was what I was really grateful for. And of course, the faculty, which is how I ended up getting my first gig. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything that you would have changed about your education? I think I would have participated in more student projects. You know, sometimes I was so focused on my internships because I did like three internships uh, and then my job that I think I didn't really utilize the school resources as much where you're encouraged to work with your fellow students on uh, short films all the time. And that was definitely something I only did like a quarter of what normal students do. Yeah, I think that's that's actually good advice and something to keep in mind for film students. Um, So you have a pretty unique story in that you actually started on The Walking Dead, which was your first major network project, as an assistant editor, and then worked your way up to editor, and then eventually started directing episodes as well, which isn't very common for TV shows, because they don't usually go as long as The Walking Dead. Um, So I kind of want to dig into that experience. And first off, I guess, how was your experience on the show? Oh, it was great. I mean, it was a dream come true in the sense that You know, I worked in New York after the documentaries for about six years where I stayed in the documentary space. Then I moved to advertising, but I went to film school to do scripted content. And so even my senior year job was kind of like a sidebar to my ultimate dream of working on these type of shows. So I love New York and I wanted to stay there. But then eventually you get tired of working on something that's not your goal. So everyone told me if you want to do post-production unscripted content, you have to move to LA, just because that's where all of the editors work from. That's where all the writers work from. So I went to LA and it was a hard six months like hustling. But then eventually I managed to work with someone that was going to work on this new show called The Walking Dead. And we got along really well and I helped him with some projects. And then he hired me to be his assistant in season two. So it was an interesting time joining in on season two, just, you know, with the showrunner changes and everything in the middle of the season. Uh, But it was really great to just be at that level, seeing everyone with so much talent and learning from them. Yeah, for sure. So most film students who want to work as editors will be starting out doing the kind of assistant editor work. So is there any advice that you can give to those students in order to stand out and hopefully get rehired or promoted and kind of work their way up in the same way that you did? Well, the interesting thing about our industry is you have to be in a union to work on a union show. And you can't get in the union unless you have like a year of work on a show that's already being broadcasted or in film festivals and screening in theaters. So, you know, my advice would be either you have some connections to work on a really nice indie movie right away, 
or you have to work in reality or documentaries or something that'll give you that year of experience. And that's just to qualify to work on the scripted contents that everyone watches on streaming and cable and network. So I would say hustle, uh, try to find the job that'll get you your union credits and then be really good at what you do. Let everyone know uh, what you want to do in a nice way. So, you know, when I was assistant, I did like six short films a year just through connections or sometimes student films. And I would just always be presenting it just when my editors feel like, hey, check this out. I just edited this. And, you know, by like the second year, they kind of got the hint. But he was also very supportive of me um, doing scenes for him. So that's what, what allowed me to move up in two years to be editors, which I'm told is kind of fast because um, I think the average is four to five years as assistant editor, sometimes six. Um, I have a lot of friends that were on multiple shows and even with the same editor and it took them six years until they got their first shot at editing. And they're very talented. So it's not a question of talent. It's a question of opportunity and letting people kind of back you in what you want to do. Wow. That's crazy. I didn't realize it sometimes took that long. That's uh. Yeah, that's six years is pretty substantial, but I mean, it also makes sense. It's a fairly competitive industry. Um, so I kind of, you mentioned documentary a few times now, and I kind of want to ask about that experience because it is so much of the storytelling is kind of through the editing. What was some of the things that you've learned doing documentaries that you took to then scripted shows? Well, I think part of documentaries is the editor gets to be essentially the, another writer on the show. Because my first experience, uh, my first job was literally walking in and walking up the stairs to uh, 40 Acres and a Mules. Their office is in an old fire station in Brooklyn. So you walk up these old fire station steps and get to the top. And all the editors and assistant editors, we sat down, had all these binders out of every interview. And they were very old school. So we would like cut up, you know, sections of strips of uh, quotes from people. And the editors would actually, all three of them would fully form the outline of the show based on the quotes. So that wasn't anything told to them by the director or anyone. They just got all the interviews. Obviously, Spike had an idea in his head. That's why he had the content in these interviews. But it was the editors who just formed the entire show that way. And we had an archivist, uh, Judy, and her assistant sitting there where the editor would just jot down notes like, oh, we need a new story segment here about this. Or, oh, we need a special thing about here. Can you find some clips on this subject? And so that's essentially how you start a documentary from my experience at NYU. Um, so just seeing that was a great way to learn how to be a creative storyteller and how much you can actually contribute as editor, which I took with me in scripted because I think a lot of scripted editors don't really utilize the creative side of it as much as they could because oftentimes a showrunner will want to see what your take on something or if something they didn't like, they're like, uh, is there anything we can do? I, I'm told one of the things that really helped push me towards my editing position was there was one time uh, in one of the big episodes where the teaser was just not working out as it was scripted. And I was just sitting uh, on the sofa, jotting notes as the assistant and my editor and the showrunner were just on the desk trying to figure it out. And after an hour, they finally turn around to me. It's like, Dan, do you have any thoughts? And it was just like fully on the spot. And this is like, you know, I'm a year and a half into this. And I'm just like, uh, what if you did this, did this and pulled these things here and changed it and sandwiched it in between a flashback? And then they were like, huh. And it's something they haven't explored in an hour. 
So they tried it and that's what it ended up being. Wow. So, you know, there's actually, even as assistant, there's always opportunities for creativity. Um, not to mention nowadays, assistants are expected to do all the sound work. So you have to be very good in designing the creative sound space because now no producer wants to watch it like the old days where you could just not do uh, fully fleshed out sound. They want to watch it like it's being broadcasted. And even though you have sound designers and you have all these other people that work on it after the cut is done, they still want to see the initial cuts like fully ready with temp music and everything. So everyone that goes into post-production should be ready to do that now. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. It seems like it's good to kind of always be ready because you never know when those opportunities are going to kind of fall in your lap. Um, And you talked about the kind of creative side. What do you think are the most important skills that an editor can have? Um, Storytelling. Definitely. I mean, you have to be able to be open-minded about storytelling, where sometimes if you don't like something, always present a second option. And sometimes it can be drastic where, you know, you have the opportunity to be like, well, I'm not sure this act works good here. What if we split it off and put part of this act in a previous act and the other act comes after the following act? You know, you can totally change the structure if it's good and you can present it uh, if you're, you know, convincing in your argument. And oftentimes it's up to the editor, especially in television, to determine the final product. Because in television, a lot of directors don't think about editing that I've noticed. So they'll shoot for performance, for blocking, and they'll just give the editor like 20 different angles. And as the editor, you have to choose like the four right ones. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like a lot of that kind of TV, they'll kind of mow it down to get all of the options. So then, you know, you can kind of find it in the editing room. So I'm, I'm sure that the documentary side of things also probably helped with that, with finding the story. Um, So that's really interesting. But as this is the perfect segue, because as you mentioned, not a lot of directors think about the edit, um, but obviously you have now transitioned into directing. So I'm very curious, how did your time in the editing room influence your approach to directing? I think I'm much more sensitive to, you know, what is needed in the scene. And with our time schedules on directing, you only have, depending on the show, you know, some shows have seven days to do an entire 42 minute episode. And then other shows have like 13, 15, 20 days. But, um, you know, you always think about the amount of days and what you can get out of a scene because you're not helping anyone by sending production wildly into um, overtime and increasing the budget if you don't know exactly what you want. Uh, Another thing that I think helps is I can be really focused on the moments that I think will help extend the drama or romance or something of a scene just because I know, you know, how you can add beats through the edit in reactions. So I'm often standing right next to the camera with like a monitor in front of me and just like looking intensely like at moments. And then after cut, I'll just jump in there and talk to the actors to uh, help focus on one moment or something that I know could help improve uh, everything in the final product. And then, you know, we'll try to capture and go for that. And then when I know I have it, then I can move on. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Is there anything, because obviously when you're watching the footage, you're going to pick up on things on set. Was there anything that you picked up just out of curiosity while you were watching, you know, the, the different takes of things on set where you're like, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that uh, when you transitioned into directing. There's tons of stuff. And I would say I can't really pick a specific thing because even as an assistant editor, you're watching 
all the dailies, or at least you should be. <laughs> and um, not everyone does because sometimes it's your crunch for time. And I've been guilty of it where they suddenly need the scene like in two hours and you have dailies, like so many hours of daily. So you're just like, okay, let me just check like a line here, a line there, they're all in sync. Okay, let's group it, let's organize it, here you go. But usually you can have the opportunity to watch most of the takes and you notice lots of little things, especially off camera, you'll hear like certain directors say something or give a comment or you'll hear actors like mutter something and you'll be like, oh, okay, I, I'll be sure not to do that. <laughs> No, that makes sense. I was wondering, because I know we had spoken to another editor who transitioned into directing. And that was one thing that he mentioned. He was like, I picked up on so many little things just in the edit suite, hearing all of the little comments that were made. Um, So I find that really interesting. So kind of going off of all of this, what do you as a director look for in an editor? What makes a good editor director relationship from that side of the room? Well, it's interesting because you know, in television, you're usually assigned an editor. And so it's not like you have a choice on it unless you're doing a pilot or a movie. So I guess whenever I'm, I'm just like, usually happy when I'm when I get someone that's technically gifted and isn't afraid to go for it, as in they're not going to do the standard what I call network style of editing, which is where you, after you're, you establish the geography, then they just jump into close-up, 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 close-up. We want to see every face. We want to see every line on the face. And I'm like, okay, okay, let, let's like, you know, play with it a little. And oftentimes it's not the editor's like thing that they do. It's just a habit they fall into from doing that type of stuff. So if you give them the room to breathe, then you'll get something really interesting. And who knows, even on network stuff, sometimes they'll like it and put it in. So do you find, just out of curiosity, is it something that you'll do once you start working with the editor on the cut? Or is like, do you usually just do an edit that's a little bit more basic for the first cut? Or are you a little bit more creative um, and take liberties with that first cut? Or is that, I I just don't know how network works. Um, And if you need to do kind of a basic cut before you start playing or yeah, I'm just curious. Well, they always turn in their cut before you start going in to do your cut. So usually based off their cut, I already know, you know, whether they're just doing something that's very standard or whether they're really taking my footage and running with it. Uh, I think, especially on the network side of things, I tend to get hired based on they like my aesthetics. So, you know, I'm not expected to turn in a standard like close up, close up, close up, like cut. I'll have that option in case they end up doing it, which they sometimes do. And I get very sad. But, you know, (laughs) um, generally with my cut, I just turn it into what I think is good. No, that makes sense. I was just curious because, yeah, I wasn't sure whether the producers would want to see the kind of or director would want to see the basic assembly almost um, or if they would want to see creativity off the bat. But that's exciting um, to hear that, you know, because as a director, you know, you know your footage very well. And even if you don't, you have access to dailies. And I think a lot of us directors, we all have like mild PTSD every time we finish shooting. So you like have vivid memories of all these moments from your shot for like months after. So I don't really need to see like a basic cut. I just want to see whatever them putting their best foot forward. No, that totally makes sense. Um, So yeah, so now let's transition into the directing side of things. Um, So what are some of your favorite parts of directing? I guess really just seeing all of the months of planning coming to life because it is directing 
you know, it's 80% planning and meetings and 20% actual onset work. So when you actually do that onset work and you see it all happening, then it's just really great that all of your hard work and everybody else's hard work is finally there and it's coming alive. Yeah, that's awesome. Were there any kind of transferable skills? Because obviously as an editor, you have assistant editors and you there is a kind of position of leadership, even though it is a more solitary job. Were there any of those skills that were kind of transferable once you got on set? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, because you still manage a team when you're the editor, because it's not just your assistant editor. It's like you have a VFX team nowadays, you have a previs team, you have, you know, all these different uh, departments that work with the editor to turn in the final cut. So in a way, you're still uh, working on managing lots of people together to achieve a common goal. And that's basically what onset directing is times 200. <laughs> True. Yeah, a little bit bigger, uh, a little bit of a scale up. <laughs> so I guess kind of going off of that, what are some of the most challenging parts? Or were there any parts that were kind of unexpected? I think the hardest thing coming from editing is just really working with the actors just because you know you don't have that experience on set like seeing their personalities seeing what they like and what takes them off or that type of stuff as well as if you don't have an acting background I did theater since I was young until I started pursuing editing in college and then I went back to do some more classes just to refresh what it's like so that I could talk to my actors on their level and not make them feel like it's a waste of their time so that's definitely something I'm very cognizant of and I try to really focus on. Um, as an editor, you're not on set as much for my 10 years of working in post. So I'm always trying to like make up for the lost time and what I didn't learn that way. That's true. So w- what are some resources, you know, besides going to acting classes, what were some resources that helped you kind of bridge that gap? There's a couple books as well about TV directing. Uh, I know there's one really good one by Bethany Rooney, And then there's a couple like uh, Judith Weston's directing actors book, as well as like her class and other classes for directing actors and not just acting classes. Those all help just in building your knowledge base um, and just being more comfortable with all these different situations that everyone's other experiences put up. And one thing that a lot of television directors do before they start directing is they shadow a director. And oftentimes it's kind of a mandate. Like, you know, when I got my first shot on, Walking Dead, it was because of a short film I uh, directed. And then I shadowed one of our main directors, Michael Satrazimus. And so I was basically with him for his entire three weeks of prep and shoot. And I worked on many of his episodes before that. So he was super nice to me. He was just like, hey, you know, just be attached to my hip wherever I run on set, just run behind me. I know that's a very unusual experience because usually it's like the shadow stays in Video Village, keep their mouth shut, ask questions only when asked. Um, and pay attention. And if they see you on your phone, you're going to get kicked out. So like, that's kind of the normal experience um, that I've heard from other people. But for me, it was literally like, you know, this friend that I've known for years that I've edited for his like great episode of work. And so I just basically ran around with him and just like took notes. It was just such a fun experience and essentially a three week intensive film school in that way. That's awesome. That's really lucky that you, yeah, that you had that relationship and were able to be such an active part of, you know, watching him on set. That's wicked. So now you've directed two episodes of Netflix's new fantasy series, Shadow and Bone. What were some of the most exciting parts of working on a new property? Because obviously you you worked on the spinoff series of The Walking Dead as well, which is, you know, new, but 
what is it like working on something that's entirely different? It's so fun building the world. That's what it is. I mean, you know, the one thing that well, I'll always remember is I flew to Budapest, uh, my family settled in our apartment, and then uh, I was driven to set just to like visit and say hi. Like they were just like, you know, I wasn't officially starting yet. And then as soon as I got to the lunchroom, I'm like cornered by like 20 production people. And they're just like, hey, so we need to build this train like ASAP. Have you read the script? Do you know like what you want in it and where it goes? And luckily, especially streaming shows, they tend to give you your scripts months in advance. So we just like sat down, looked at the blueprints, and I talked about every aspect of it, where cameras would go and what objects we'd need. And then I said, hold off on the front because I'm going to do a rehearsal with the actors. And then uh, probably in a week, we'll get you the details of exactly the placement of all of these things. So it was just getting to be a part of building this whole new universe um, was really fun. When we scout, you're looking at locations that are completely redone based on what you had. We went to this one tin factory that was like they use for film projects. So it's super rundown and gross looking. And they made it into a beer hall, like a giant beer hall for 200 people and with a stage. So it's just like a lot of that, like really building the world is what's fun about season one shows. I did another thing in Toronto last month for two months. That was essentially another type of world building thing that was really fun because then you're just like looking at getting into these sets for the first time. And none of the actors uh, have preconceived notion of what they need to do on those sets because it's a first time set. So, you know, you don't have to worry really about any pushback on any of your blocking ideas because they're experiencing it for the first time, just like you. That's cool. I hadn't really thought about that with the blocking, but I'm sure, yeah, once an actor is kind of familiar with the space or even a crew is kind of familiar with the space, they'll have ideas of like what can work and what should be done and uh, all of that. So I imagine that it's quite liberating working on a new property in a new space where, yeah, there aren't that those kind of notions that are already kind of set. But you kind of touched on this a little bit with the pre-production. I'm curious as to, you know, what your pre-production process is like on such a large project. Well, for me, I like to be, I always say being overprepared is better than underprepared. And that's just been my philosophy for the past four years I've been directing. So my philosophy is to get the script as early as possible, even an outline. And when I read the script, just from my editor's mindset, I'll generally see like a frame I like in each scene. And so I'll build it out in my head for like my goal of the scene. And the thing is, that's like a really rough blueprint of the scene, because sometimes I'll get inspired by location or some of the acting or some of whatever they do in the blocking or action. So things adapt, but I have this rough blueprint in my head and I write down an entire shot list of the whole episode or two episodes. And so within the first day or two, I'll have a shot list that I'll give to my um, DP and assistant director. And we build a schedule just uh, really early on based on that shot list. Um, It's not required. You know, there's certain directors that work on instinct and are really good at it where they don't do a shot list and they'll just do everything else in the prep process and when they show up and rehearse the scene with the actors on the day of they'll be like oh we need a camera here 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 and I can do that but I much prefer to really know ahead of time especially when you come to some of these bigger budget series where you're like okay we need to cut a hole in this wall here to put a camera here because we're going to send a crane through that hole following these people And, you know, you can't do that on the day of. That's just not possible. So if you have any interesting ideas, um, it's good to let everyone know early on so they can do things. Like, you know, on Shadow and Bone, they were shooting with 8K cameras. So there are these giant monstrosities where you 
can't put cameras in where you would normally put cameras. Like you can't use the iPhone and put it in something. So like for one shot, I wanted Anaj to open a drawer and the camera to see her opening the drawer from inside. And that was a whole build because they had to build a fake drawer that would cover the camera that she can pull out because it's not a small camera. And you have to shoot in AK specifically to these specifications. So you can't put an iPhone in there or anything. So, you know, you have to know those things way ahead of time because it involves so many people to even get that one three second shot off. That's good to know. Is there, because you do such an extensive shot list, is it something where on set on the day, if you find something, you'll kind of deviate from that? Or do you usually stick pretty religiously to the shot list that you make? No, you have to be adaptable. I mean, that's just the nature of the film industry. Like if you can't deviate from it in any way, then no one's going to be happy. So generally my plan has been pretty good 80% of the time. And then by the time, you know, you start shooting, you usually have a backup plan. And then if the backup plan doesn't work, then based on experience, especially from editing, you know, like, okay, we only have like one hour for this scene, scratch the shot list. We need these shots to make it work. Uh, and they'll look at the schedule like, okay, I can give you three, those three shots. And you're like, okay, let's do this. Or like on one of the episodes of Walking Dead, it was like a really great scene between two actors and outside. And, you know, I planned a couple really great shots. And then my uh, producer comes up to me and is like, hey, I just checked the weather and there's going to be a storm in 40 minutes. And I'm like, okay, we have three shots. Let's get going. <laughs> like, and then you just make it work with like three shots that you know, you know, uh, we'll have a camera on Dolly following this person on shoulder as they walk up to this person so we can catch over the shoulder, push into the close up uh, halfway through the scene. Other side, same thing. And then give me a wide, uh, slow push in of the scene of the two shot. And that's it. And then, you know, as soon as we cut on that last take, poof, rain. Wow. It's pretty wild. I imagine the editing then is probably very valuable in those moments where you can kind of visualize exactly what you need, like the bare minimum of what you need to make the scene work. Because I know sometimes directors don't even really partake much in the editing on network shows because it's such a short amount of time and there's such a quick turnover where they'll just watch it maybe give some notes and that's it a previous director that I had talked to was like sit in on the editing and make sure that you know this stuff because it makes sense that it would be really valuable to know you know what is needed what is absolutely needed to make a scene work what do you think are the most important skills a director can have a director can have um, adaptability yeah you just really need to roll with it and still come out with something good no matter what happens you know there's often times you show up and they're like oh so that car that was going to go across the screen here um it broke down and you're like okay and then you check with the writer can we have them just like get walk out of the car and start walking and that's the scene instead of a driving thing and then they're like let me call some people okay sure go and then you're just like okay everyone get off of that rig we're going on steady here we go <laughs> You know, you got to be adaptable to the situation because you never know what's going to go wrong and what doesn't work. And sometimes you just have to work with it. And it's a lot easier nowadays with visual effects because, you know, you know, they can enhance it. It's kind of like, oh, this thing needs to fall on this thing and it needs to like crush everything and create a big opening. And so as much as special effects will work on it on the day of, if it falls and doesn't break everything and it's just a tiny break. He was like, oh, and then I just look over at my um, VFX producer and he's like, we can fix that in post. I'm like, well, thank goodness. Ah, <laughs> uh, the fix it in post. Um, that's awesome, though. So 
kind of one last question that I have before I open it up to everyone else. A lot of your job obviously centers around relationships and creative partnerships. How do you foster those working relationships with producers and cinematographers and actors to achieve your vision, but also a collaborative environment? Um, I think you just have to be very communicative early on. And I find that if everyone sees that you have an idea, then they'll be very good about helping you to achieve it. It's like anytime one of the 200 people come and ask you a question and you don't know how to answer it, I think that's when you lose respect on set. I mean, you can legitimately not know and you can just, but you have to have an idea of how you'll know that soon. Like it's okay to say, oh, I don't know right now, but you need to know like what steps you need to know that, to let the other person know. I mean, this is especially key for camera crews. Tons of people switch camera to different equipment for you to get your shot off. And sometimes that affects their day completely. And uh, oftentimes when I show up to set, someone's like, do you need steady for this scene? Because then the, it's like a half hour changeover from you know the current rig. And then if you know, you'll be like, oh, um, I'm, this scene's going to be on crane and Dolly steady is after lunch. And then you just made their day easier because they can plan what they're going to do physically. So that type of thing. And if you don't really know that, then they'll just be like, well, what am I doing? Like, Yeah, I'm sure a lot of it comes down to the prep and also communication with your AD and being aware of what's coming next. Um, yeah, but I could see- oh, that. And um, an important thing is to let people do their jobs. I think a good example is like the dolly grip. If you want something smoother or something, just explain to them like in your terms, not in their terms. Don't walk up over their shoulder and be like, I think you need to move an inch to the left or something like that. Don't belittle their job. As the director, I'm like, oh, you know, on that frame, it looks like we can push in and have that guy's head a little more on this side of the screen. And then they're like, okay. And then they'll do it because these guys have been doing it, you know, decades longer than you. So just explain to them what you want to see on the screen uh, and then they'll work to achieve it. And for me, that even works for DP and uh, as well, because I'm not going to talk about lenses to my DP. Now, there are DP turn directors. I love doing that. But for me, I'm going to be like, oh, give me a shot like this. I'm not going to be like, oh, you know, I think you need to be on the 50 and not like the 35. It's like, who am I to say that? <laughs> you just explain to them what you need. They'll give it to you. And it's okay if you don't like it. And you're like, oh, I'm not too sure about that. Maybe we need to go a little wider. Go slightly. They'll change something until you're happy. But, you know, that's my philosophy of collaborating is like, let them do their job and don't micromanage to that level, or at least if you do micromanage, communicate in a way that they feel like they have control over their actions. I think that's really great advice. Uh, so now I'm gonna open it up to a few of my friends. Thank you so much for coming on. And it was really interesting to listen to you. I was wondering, um, there's kind of this proverbial saying, or it's been said a few times at film school that a good edit is one that doesn't draw a lot of attention to itself. But then again, I've seen films where the edit has been maybe like the has given the film a lot of merit. Like there's a lot of stylistic things going on. So I'm wondering uh, what you kind of thought of that proverbial saying, is a good edit one that's low key or can an edit sometimes be really artistic? I would say like a general rule for me in school is to learn all the rules and then learn when it's great to break them. So in that regards for editing, for a normal scene, you don't want to draw attention to the editing because you wanna be in that environment until something needs focus. This is a good example. In a dialogue scene, when you edit into a close-up, that's already drawing attention to it because suddenly you're deeper into the character's emotions. Now that can be subtly drawing attention to it, but it's still drawing attention to it. 
So then you can do that. And then sometimes it'll be like a push into their eyes. That's calling it out a little more. Then you have something like Chicago where you're like, boom, 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 boom. And the edit like wins the Oscar for the whole movie. So, you know, there's lots of times when these rules can be broken when it's called for or when the vision like calls for it, which is totally legitimate because at the end of the day, you're making something that people love and enjoy. So it's a very like subjective thing. I mean, I would say even when I was editing, I love to sit back and watch it as like a viewer. And I just try to put myself every decision I have in the edit, I would put it in, then I would sit back on my couch or like walk back to my couch and sit and watch the screen and just see like as a viewer, whether this worked for me or whether this brought me deeper into the scene, no matter if it drew attention or not. Two quick questions. The first is, were you a fan of fantasy before you directed fantasy? I am like one of the biggest fans of fantasy. Um, You know, growing up in elementary school, I read the Dragonlance books as like my first kind of novels. Then I read the Wheel of Time series that went through to high school and then the Rift War saga and then all of Brandon Sanderson's work because he did the last books of Wheel of uh, Time. And and now I'm still reading like, you know, all the stuff. And of course, I've been reading uh, Shadow and Bone and Six Crows and all of those Lee Bardugo works. Um, So yeah, I love fantasy. Like fantasy is kind of my first love, then sci-fi my second. I love that. Um, My (laughs) second question was, so you edit quite often. What do you sit on like all day? What do I sit on? Oh, um, so when I first started um i would just sit on whatever chair they provided for me and then i started sitting on one of those like um exercise balls because i wanted to just like be a little more active but not too active and then once i started really like getting into the edit as an editor i just realized i was so immersed in the scene like working on it that it was distracting moving around so then i just sat back on a normal chair but not like an air on chair because i thought those air on chairs were never that comfortable no matter what they say about like the ergonomics of it so I just always sat on a normal, whatever chair, cushy, comfortable chair. Hi, I just had two questions. Um, I know uh, you directed uh, Shadow and Bone and it's, the whole series was directed by four directors, evenly two episodes each. Was there a reason for that? And were there some challenges that came with it? Um, I think that's a more common practice, especially for shows that shoot outside the United States of America because when you fly out a director, it's kind of easier to keep them there for a while, as long as you can. And so nowadays, multiple shows do block shooting, which is where you uh, each director gets two episodes. And especially with COVID, even in LA shows, I did like block shooting just because it's easier to keep everyone safe if the director's uh, the same one and being constantly tested for COVID and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the challenge is you just have to keep more in your head because now you're doing like two hours of content instead of one, but they schedule that where you'll always have the same amount of days to prep as you have to shoot essentially. So for Shadow and Bone, I was prepping for like a month and shooting for a month. So are you shooting the two episodes kind of at once or do you shoot them one after another? Uh, For Shadow and Bone, I shot them uh, at once where I prepped both episodes and I shot both episodes. For other shows, I've done prep, shoot, prep, shoot. But then when it airs, basically it airs with you in between another person. I don't remember how it airs. But yeah, I did prep, shoot, prep, shoot for another show. Good to know. Thank you. 
Just one more. I know it's an HDR Dolby Vision project, and you were talking about how big the camera was and kind of how unreasonably large it was. Um, were there some challenges doing an HDR production? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we were in these anamorphic lenses, so you can't go as close and still catch focus in the background, like rack to deep background. If you have a macro shot, you have to commit to the macro shot, and then you have to use an edit, which you have to know what how you're going to get out of that shot to another shot that can rack to the other things in the background. Um, and then just the size of the camera, they're not as mobile. They can't like exactly run around with it on their shoulders, especially when you have some camera operators that are well into their like 50s or 60s. So yeah, it's it definitely has its disadvantages. But the bonus is, you know, since no one really broadcasts in AK, technically you can blow up a shot like and resize the shot. I know Fincher is like really big on resizing all of his shots. And oftentimes it is helpful because sometimes there will be like, oh, I wish I had one more angle on this. Wait, let's just like blow this up 30% and then we have a, like, a close up. Uh, so yeah, don't always recommend it, but you know, sometimes you just have to do it. Hi, um, as students, we kind of oftentimes when we direct, we also edit our own film. So there is kind of a lot of control into that aspect of like what shots get in and stuff like that. I was wondering on bigger productions, how much, how many notes can you get to the editor to be like, oh, I like this take a lot, or I think this angle, this performance worked really well, and how much communication there is there, and how like that process works of getting your thoughts on set to the editor. Well, that's the full job of the script supervisor. And on these professional, bigger productions, your script supervisor is just amazingly good. And you know, sometimes the editors, I know certain editors that don't like looking at the script notes, but if you have like something in mind, you just send a text or email to the editor being like, oh, hey, um, check out the script notes for this scene because there's some specifics I'd like you to see. And because the script coordinator, um, supervisor, the person next to you is always like, you know, listening to you. And when you're doing something, you're like, oh, that was really great. Then they'll just jot down like, you know, really good. And then after you finish that setup, they'll let you know, oh, you like this and this and this. Um, is there anything else? And then uh, if there was some specific thing, you would tell them and they would it, it would all be there on the script pages for the editor. And you just have to just let them know that it's there, take a look. And if they don't follow it, then when you have your days to edit with the editor, then you'll just be like, oh, hey, can we look at this one take again? I feel like I remember something that I really liked about it. And then they'll look and oh yeah, let's use that, that type of thing. Hi, um, I also have a couple of questions. My first one, I'm really curious about your experience with VFX, especially from like an editor's perspective, like turn director. I'm sort of wondering like how much do you structure scenes and shots around planning for VFX and how much is the VFX like planned around how you want to structure the blocking of the scene? Um, it all depends on what the budget and how much it costs for VFX in the script. Since I, you know, already see it in my head on the day, early days of prep, I'll communicate what I see the scene needing. And in those meetings is with the VFX department. So then you know, you'll talk about, let's say in Shadow and Bone, a Volcra like broke through the top of the train and we saw it like, and then you talk with special effects. What are we gonna do? Uh, is it easier to like set explosives to blow the top of the train off? Or what are we gonna do with that? And they'll be like, oh, you know, if VFX can do it, then we just uh, have a hole uh, and we'll have a green screen in the sky behind it. And then I'm like, okay, great. And then uh, you talk to props. Do we have a temp Volcra that we can use for our actors? And they're like, okay, we can like do a rehearsal with our big like bust of a Volcra. And then we'll just have a CG ball that they'll interact with. I mean, a green ball that someone will hold so they can like look at it that way once you shoot. 
So all of those things are all happening in prep. And I would say having the experience is definitely good and will probably get you the job in the first place. But when you're actually doing it, there's so many people that have a skill set that will help you achieve what you communicate. So you don't really need that experience except to get you the job because no one's going to hire you if you have no experience with it. I mean, unless it's your own movie type of situation. That's really interesting, the approach to it. My other question was more about working with other directors on like a series like that, because you were saying how you do, it's common practice to have multiple on a, on a short series. How do you work together to make sure there's consistency with how you approach each episode if it's not the same director for the whole thing? I think usually they leave that up to the DPs uh, because you know, the DPs have to kind of light every set the same way, no matter the different episodes. So, you know, I got to probably establish how the lighting goes in certain things. Like, you know, the Little Palace was really, I, my episode explored that. So future things in the Little Palace, they all had to like have light coming in through the windows this way, that type of thing. But otherwise, it's really, the nice thing about directing is you do have so much creative control. And so you can do things how you want it. And as long as you know, you're not making the show look completely weird. I don't think any director that gets hired regularly will do that. So when, if you present something that's wildly different, but you think it's appropriate uh, and the producers really love the sound of it, then you go and shoot it because that's what you believe in. And that's why they hired you. So I'm kind of curious also about the showrunner and like making sure that all the directors are kind of on the same page tonally. Is that something that you'll meet about and like have conversations about because I'm sure obviously the crew kind of tries to keep it consistent I, I guess visually and tonally but is that something that you'll talk about in prep with the showrunner or producers yeah yeah so um you always have a showrunner tone meeting for every episode you do in television basically it'll be like a one and a half to three hour meeting where they'll go through like every character every actor and every scene in your episode um, sometimes they'll skip things that you already know, or they don't think it, you need to know, but, uh, you'll get a breakdown of everything, including like, you know, tendencies of certain people that they've noticed. So it's actually quite helpful. And I think that's what really establishes the standard in terms of like, what's happening between one episode and the next. Hi, I'm going to ask another question. I know we talked about, uh, the strengths of coming in from the editing room to the directing that you have because of that background. I was wondering if there were any weaknesses that you found because of like being an editor that came directors, were there any weaknesses that you had? I was really lucky and I knew a bunch of editor turned directors, like, and especially I knew intimately their firsthand experiences. So I made sure to watch out for those. And that includes like onset culture, like always be prepared for the environment you're in. So like, don't dress in Crocs if you're going to be walking outside in the forest with lots of ticks and bugs, because then A, the crew will probably laugh at you, and B, it's just not good for yourself. And so I made sure to always be ready because, you know, when you shoot in like Georgia in the summer, there's lots of things that will bite you and leave rashes if you're not covered properly and with bug spray. And then the other thing is, I touched about it already, is working with actors, like unless you have that experience, you don't get that in the editing room. So you need to be very confident working with actors. And I would say for the bigger shows, you have to take it a step further and know how to run rehearsal. And that's one thing that's not necessary in network shows or any show with like 
under seven day or under eight days of shooting generally. But if you're talking about some of like the world building shows or some of the season one shows, you need to be able to run a rehearsal and have actors benefit from that rehearsal every time you run it. Otherwise, you know, you're not doing your job properly as a director. That's good to know. Uh, so before we wrap this up, I am just going to ask for your five film recommendations. Uh, and this could be, I don't know how you interpreted this, if it was things that were well-directed <laughs> or edited or just your favorite films. But yeah, if you could walk us through that, that would be great. Okay. So my the first film that's just something from my childhood that I just love is Back to the Future because it's just so well done, so well written, the first one. And it's just something that just always makes me go wow uh the second one is more recent i loved arrival because it's a very smart science fiction movie where it didn't rely on big action set pieces that you traditionally think of but still had you on the edge of your seat and then hereditary which is um this horror film but it when i talk about like going for it that's what i mean in terms of editing like you don't have to cut away you can keep keep going keep the tension up you can really go for it and it really, you really feel, feel it as a viewer. Like you're creeped out, you're scared and everything's so well done. He moves the camera very purposefully. Like I paid specific attention to when he wraps around certain characters with their eye movement. And I think just knowing that has helped my directing and like my more recent things I've done, just knowing how purposefully you can move the camera. Taiguki is this Korean war drama that's probably considered like the top war drama coming out of South Korea. And it's just one of those big epic war movies about brotherhood that just makes you fall in love with the characters and with their life. Sayonara Itsuka is uh, this other South Korean film, but kind of set about uh, lovers that reunite in Bangkok um, years later in their life. And it's so bittersweet and beautiful and just like something about the moments and the cinematography that just takes your breath away. Thank you so much, Dan, for talking about your journey. And thanks to those of you who asked questions. But that is all for this episode of Film Kid Asks. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram or join our Facebook group for information about upcoming guests. New episodes come out every Saturday. 